Hey everyone, this is Pastor Dan. It is so good to be back with you today. I've been traveling for two weeks, uh, all business trips. I went to back-to-back conferences. One was up in Halifax, Nova Scotia. The other one was out in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Um, It was a lot of fun, learned a lot of good stuff, but it is so great to be back with you all. Um, We had some fantastic guest preachers while I was away. Doc Kavanaugh and Norma Drosky filled in. So if you weren't in church to hear those messages the last two Sundays, um, please be sure to listen online so you don't miss out. Now, um, as you might be able to tell, we had a little technical glitch in the recording this Sunday. So I am sitting here in my office on Monday morning re-recording the sermon, which, you know, serves me right for missing two weeks in a row. Now I get to do this sermon twice. Our sermon for today is called On Smiting Enemies and Plowing Fields, but before we get to that, uh, just a little update on where we're headed this summer. I've got one more week off. It's my last week off for the summer that I'm taking actually later this week. My family and I are going to do a long weekend uh, down in Lake George. It should be a lovely time uh, away with the family to recover from all this business travel. And so I will not be with you in worship next Sunday, but we are going to have a fantastic guest preacher in church, uh, Roosevelt Marius, who is the Dean and Executive Director of the Rochester Educational Opportunity Center will be with us. Uh, And that's connected to the college at Brockport uh, here in the village. So that will be awesome. Uh, Be sure to be in church next Sunday for that. Then I'll be back in worship on July 14th. And that's when we're actually going to be launching into a proper preaching series that will take us through most of August, which means that today's sermon is kind of a one-shot. Our text for today is Luke 9, verses 51 to 62, and I will now read it from the New Revised Standard Version. When the day drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he set messengers ahead of him. On their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him, but they did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But then he turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead. As for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, I'll be the first to admit this passage is kind of a weird one. There are really two halves to this passage, and they don't really seem to fit together. And both those halves are pretty problematic at first glance, but for very different reasons. Uh, In the first half of our passage, verses 51 to 56, Jesus and his disciples are headed toward Jerusalem when they come to the Samaritan village that denies them entry. So naturally, the disciples ask Jesus if they should call down fire from heaven to destroy the village, like you do, and Jesus rebukes them. Then in the second half of our passage, verses 57 to 62, Jesus is approached by three different individuals along the road who are all looking to follow him. But being an absolutely terrible evangelist, Jesus turns them all away quite 
harshly. Now, at first glance, these two halves don't really seem to have anything to do with each other, but if we zoom out a bit and look at the context, look at where Luke chose to place these stories as his narrative unfolds, it actually makes a lot more sense. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and things are not going to go very well for him once he gets there. See, we're at a kind of a pivot point in Luke's gospel here in chapter 9. At the beginning of Luke's gospel, you get the birth narratives, the, the stories about Jesus' birth and all the events surrounding that. We looked at a lot of that together during Advent. Then for the next six or seven chapters, Luke tells us about Jesus' ministry in Galilee, the north country, sort of Jesus' home turf. Uh, we looked at some of that together back in January and February. And now here in chapter 9, Jesus sets his sight on Jerusalem. And the rest of Luke's gospel is going to be about Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, where he's going to be welcomed like a king. He's going to debate with some of the religious authorities. He's uh, going to do a demonstration in the temple that's going to get a lot of attention. He's going to have his last supper with his disciples. He's going to tell a ton of stories, parables. And then Jesus is going to be imprisoned, tried, and executed by Rome as an enemy of the state. That's all in about a week. It's quite a week. <laughs> so when this passage tells us Jesus set his sights toward Jerusalem, we're at a very crucial pivot point in the story. Jesus is heading to his death, and his followers have no clue what's about to happen. Just a bit before our passage in verses 44 and 45, Jesus actually tells his disciples that he's going to die. And the disciples respond by arguing with each other about which one of them is the greatest. I think they might have missed the point there. And so Jesus and his disciples come to the Samaritan village that denies them entrance. Now, there was a ton of drama between the Jews and the Samaritans back in Jesus' day. Those two groups did not get along. And so it makes sense that the Samaritans might not welcome a Jewish teacher and his followers who are traveling through their town. But we know from other stories about Jesus that he actually passed through Samaria an awful lot. See, the normal thing to do back then, if, if a Jewish person was traveling, especially from Galilee, the north country, down to Jerusalem in the south, Samaria kind of sat between those two regions, a typical Jewish person would usually add a couple days extra to their journey to walk around Samaria, just so they didn't have to deal with the Samaritans. But Jesus was different. Jesus liked to travel through Samaria and actually hang out with the Samaritans. Luke even has some really positive examples of Samaritans elsewhere in his gospel. So while it's possible that the Samaritans turned Jesus away out of spite, Luke's language actually gives us another clue as to what might be going on here. Verse 53 says that the disciples entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for Jesus, but the Samaritans did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And that's a key line there. You got to understand that when Jesus predicts his death, he's actually not being all that prophetic. We read it now, like 2,000 years later, we see Jesus talking about his death before it happens, and it's like, oh my gosh, how amazing that he knows the future. But it was actually really common for messianic figures to go into Jerusalem and get killed. That's kind of how things went down. There were dozens of would-be messiahs in Jesus' day, these, these powerful leaders who, whose followers thought they were the messiah. They thought that this was the person promised to rescue their people from oppression, and it would always end the exact same way. 
this charismatic leader would attract a large following. They'd march into Jerusalem with their disciples. They'd be heralded as king. And then the Romans would arrest them and kill them. That's how it went down. Jesus knows at this point that he's going to die. His disciples don't have a clue, but it's interesting to note that the Samaritans, the religious outsiders who've welcomed Jesus many times before, they turn him away this time when they find out he's heading to Jerusalem. Now, it could be out of spite. That's possible. But it's just as possible that these Samaritans know what's about to happen to Jesus. They've seen this play out many times before. And they don't want any part of it. So when James and John offer to call down fire from heaven to annihilate this little village, the context of the story really drives home how wildly off point Jesus' disciples are. They want a warrior. They want a Messiah who's going who's gonna to call down fire from heaven on their enemies, who's going to march into Jerusalem, take over cleanse the temple, cast out the Romans, be declared king. But that's not quite what Jesus is about. If you're looking for a God who's going to give you victory, a God who's going to crush your opponents and elevate you, a God who's going to give you power and authority and prosperity, if that's what you really want, you might actually be in the wrong religion. Because Christianity doesn't look like that. Our faith is patterned around the way of Jesus and his journey to the cross. Where Jesus hasn't come to crush his enemies, but to save them. To lay down his life for them. To lay down his power and his authority to elevate everyone else. The disciples haven't caught on to that yet, and I think a lot of us still struggle with that, too. We're coming up on the 4th of July, which is the birthday of our country, which is awesome. I know I'll be wearing red, white, and blue. We'll probably go see some fireworks. It's a a great time to be patriotic and proud of our country. All good stuff. But how many of us have intermingled that patriotism, maybe even a dose of nationalism, with our faith? How many of us have bought into the idea that God has a special place for us? A special place for our country, our people. That God kind of like just ranks us a tiny bit higher than all the other nations of the world. How many of us are looking for a God who's going to smite our enemies and give us the victory? That's where the disciples are coming from, and they're in for a very rude awakening once Jesus reaches Jerusalem. So that's the first half of our passage. In the second half of the passage, our attention shifts from Jesus' disciples to some would-be disciples, some people who are all caught up in all this energy and excitement that's surrounding Jesus as he makes his way to Jerusalem, and they want a taste of it. But just like Jesus' disciples These three individuals he encounters along the road have no clue what's about to happen to him. The first person tells Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. This is really similar to a line that Peter's going to give Jesus at the Last Supper. When he swears to follow him, even to death, mere hours before denying him three times. 
See, this line, I will follow you wherever you go, this is a loyalty pledge. It's the kind of thing a knight might say to their king before a battle. When you're so sure that your king is going to win, so you pledge your loyalty to them. I'll follow you wherever you go in the hope that they're going somewhere good. In the hope that once the battle's over and the king has won, they'll remember your loyalty and reward it. This would-be disciple thinks Jesus is heading into victory. But Jesus lets them know right away that where he's headed, few will want to follow. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus is not some noble king headed toward victory. He's a homeless, itinerant preacher walking into his own execution. Are you sure that's where you want to go? Are we sure that's the king we're looking for? Are we willing to lay down our lives to surrender our security, our preferences, our comforts for a king who directs us to love the stranger, the foreigner, our enemies? Is that the kind of king we want? A king who calls us to lay down our power and take up the cross? Is that a king we'll follow even unto death? Or are we looking for something else? The second person Jesus encounters on the road to Jerusalem <clears throat> wants to follow him. But first he wants to bury his father, which seems like a reasonable request, right? But Jesus replies, let the dead bury their dead, which at the very least is a bit insensitive. See, though, here's the thing. <clears throat> In ancient Jewish custom, especially around the time of Jesus, burials would usually take place within about 24 hours of a person's death. If you died in the morning, you'd be in the ground by nightfall. So if this guy is asking for permission to stay behind and bury his father, there's a pretty good chance his father isn't dead yet. And there's a whole lot of other cultural baggage kind of hidden between the lines of this request as well. Burying one's father was a very important custom. It, it had to do with, with honor in the community, with preserving one's standing in your family. It also had a lot of economic realities tied to it. If, if you wanted to receive your inheritance, you'd better be there to bury your father. Otherwise, you'd, you'd probably forfeit your portion of the estate. Now, Luke doesn't give us any background information here. We don't know if this guy's father is sick. We don't know if they're just elderly. We don't know if this guy's on his deathbed or what. But the context seems to imply something to the effect of, I want to follow you, Jesus, but first let me attend to some family issues. Let me stay with my father in his last days. Make sure he gets a good burial. Oh, and then there's going to be some financial matters I'll need to attend to. And then I'll connect back with you and become your disciple. Which, again, not unreasonable if we give this guy the benefit of the doubt. But think about the timeline here. Jesus is on his way from Galilee to Jerusalem. That's about a three-day walk by foot. And then once he gets to Jerusalem, he's got about a week before he's going to be hung on a cross to die. So this guy's request, all this stuff he's got going on, it's just not going to happen. 
There's no time. He doesn't understand the urgency of where Jesus is heading. Do we have a sense of urgency? Or are we taking our time? When we talk about our church being part of what God is doing here in Brockport, is that something we're about right now? Or is that something we're going to get to eventually? Are we focused on carrying out the mission of God in our midst right here and now, deepening our faith, connecting with the community, serving those in need, bringing in new people into what we're doing? Is that something we're about right here and right now? Or are we so distracted by a million other things in our lives that we're going to miss out on what God is up to? Then there's the third person who says, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Another reasonable request. But what does Jesus say? No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Ouch. Yeah, that's, that's pretty harsh. Now, believe it or not, I have never worked a plow. I know it's hard to believe with these soft city boy hands that you can't see right now, but that everyone could see in church yesterday and got a good laugh. I don't know the first thing about plowing a field, but I did Google it. And apparently when you plow a field, you have to look ahead of you. You have to look forward if you want to keep the plow straight. If you take your eye off the field in front of you at all and look back, the plow line is not going to be straight. And apparently that's bad. I don't, I don't know if the plants really care about being planted in a straight line. I'm, I'm not sure exactly how that works. But for some reason, that's important. And, and here's the point of the metaphor, I think. You can't move forward if you're looking back all the time. We cannot move forward if we're always stopping to look back. We've seen a lot of really exciting new things in this past year together. We've welcomed new members, we've welcomed new families, we've engaged with the college here in town on a level that, that, as far as I know, this church has never seen before. We put together a new children's program, we're launching a youth ministry in the fall. This is all really amazing stuff. God is calling this church forward in some new and very exciting ways, but we will never be able to move forward if we're always looking back. The disciples have no clue how much their lives are about to change. They have no idea what they're going to be asked to give up, what they're going to have to endure, what's going to happen to them when they reach Jerusalem. And spoiler alert, we don't know either. We don't know what kind of changes await us in the future. We don't know what kind of new territory God's going to call this church into and what trade-offs might come along with that, and that's really scary. But there are a whole list of other things the disciples don't know about other than the, the scary stuff. Like they don't yet know the glory of seeing Christ resurrected. They haven't seen the Holy Spirit descend on them like it will at Pentecost. They haven't seen the amazing ways that God is going to deepen and expand their community, driving them to the ends of the earth with the good news to welcome all kinds of outsiders into the family of God. And in the same way, I believe that while we don't yet know the cost of the future God is calling us to, 
we also can't possibly fathom the joys and the blessings that lie ahead. Tomorrow, uh, July 1st, is actually going to be my one-year anniversary at this church. And looking back, when I came here a year ago, I had no idea what a blessing this community was going to be to me and my family. But I also had no idea how much this call was going to challenge me and stretch me, forcing me out of my comfort zone in all sorts of scary and amazing ways. And so when I think, when, when we think together about the future of this church, I hope you're as excited and as terrified as I am. Because God is doing big things here. God is calling us down some new and exciting roads, but it's going to be painful. It's going to be challenging. But it's also going to be amazing. And I can't wait to walk that road with each and every one of you. Amen.